It is the Holding Serve Podcast, the return after a very, very long hiatus. Just about a just about a year ago since we uh, or since I put out an episode, had to take an extended break. Which, for anyone who's listening, I'll explain. Uh, won't go too far into it, but just a personal situ, a couple of personal situations that uh, needed to be dealt with. Mainly, um, last November. Unfortunately, I I lost my father, and so that, as you know, as anyone can imagine, hit me pretty hard and kind of shook up my life. And things that seemed so simple or so routine just kind of fell out of whack. And for a while there, I didn't. I mean, I still enjoyed tennis. I still watched, but I didn't really want to record. I didn't. uh, You know, there were a lot of things that I didn't want to do, and. Maybe a few short weeks after my father died, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and had to undergo two operations over the next few months to uh, remove the thyroid, remove the tumor, and then there's a whole process that happens after that. But uh, you know, right now, knock on wood, we, we're looking pretty good as far as that as far as that goes, and um. I was just ready to ready to start recording again, ready to put out content, and what a time for what a time for this podcast to return off the heels of a very exciting U.S. Open, uh, the retirement or what was it, evolution of Serena Williams, first time Grand Slam winner and Carlos Alcaraz, which was really exciting, and uh, so a lot going on in tennis, and I was really really excited to come back. So even though I would have liked to have been back a little sooner, this for me was the right time. Um, in this episode, I'm not going to talk too much. I'll get to the Federer retirement because, I mean, you could do hours and hours on Federer by himself and it wouldn't be fair to try and just squeeze it in. What we have here today is an interview that I recorded with uh, a former Grand Slam doubles champion and current ESPN tennis analyst Luke Jensen. Uh, Luke and I uh, hopped on the phone uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago maybe, Um Shortly after the U.S. Open ended, uh, we talked about the U.S. Open, obviously, uh, the many storylines that went went on for those two weeks. We talked about Serena Williams and her playing her last last ever tournament, we think, and the emergence of players like Francis Tiafoe, who uh, was able to take that next step in this Grand Slam. So we did get into the current and future of American tennis. Uh, so... What we're going to do here is we're going to go into that Luke Jensen interview. I will come back on the other end to tie it up. And then in the next episode, we'll get all into the Roger Federer retirement. But for right now, here's Luke Jensen uh, and I from a couple of weeks ago tying up the 2022 U.S. Open and a little more. Hope you guys enjoy it. It's a pleasure to be joined once again uh, by one of my favorite people in tennis to, to talk to. Uh, he is a French Open doubles champion. He is the master of the ambidextrous serve. Uh, he is ESPN's Luke Jensen. Luke, thanks for coming back. How are you? Anytime. Anytime. Absolutely love it, man. The uh, Doing good. Just finished the USO and uh, watching a little Davis Cup, the United States and Great Britain battling it out in Glasgow. So uh, life's good. 
Life is good. Yeah, I was actually uh, checking out uh, Canada and Korea yesterday. I was watching uh, FAA. Yeah, um, it's very interesting to watch the neutral sites because obviously, so we're so used to the old school Davis Cup format where it was always at some home country um, that was hosting it. So there's a lot of national pride and the bells and all the all the noise, you know, cheering and. Some of these neutral sites is kind of dead. They are kind of dead. Uh, Davis Cup always had that, like you said, always had that uh, World Cup soccer type feel. Yeah. At one time, it was bigger than the Olympics. I mean, you go back into like the 20s and 30s, it was the international competition and uh, you know, played every year throughout the year. And just things have changed through the, uh, through the years, through the decades. And I know the ITF had to do something because even though it's successful at some of the uh, big countries, especially some of the founding countries like Australia, the uh, United States, and others, some of the smaller countries were really hurting to the point where they were going to play Davis Cup, but even when they were allowed to host it, they were going to lose so much money they'd rather play an away match. And so they had to do something on the uh, on the venue or the format to try to do something. I don't know if this is, this is the answer, but at least it's uh, – it saved the, you know, this traditional competition amongst nations. Yeah, and uh, and we were well, we were talking about how uh, before we started, uh, we were talking about uh, the importance of it to some players, and I guess we'll start with the guy that just just won the U.S. Open. Um, I saw Alcaraz is playing Davis Cup this week. Yeah, how about that? You know, just the big announcement. You know, as you know, it goes way back in Spain where, you know, so many players uh, from Santana and others, I mean, this is going back into like the 50s and 60s, that it was just very important. And uh, in our country, historically, like a John McEnroe, he was available every single opportunity. And sometimes the USA didn't pick him, or sometimes he was even suspended for his behavior, but he was always available. I think it comes down to, you know, how you feel about representing your country. Some people just don't. They feel it's a it's way too much pressure. Um, but Alcaraz is one of these guys who grew up watching Rafael Nadal and others. For Spain, represent the country in, in the Olympics, represent them in Davis Cup, and, of course, the great females they had with Arancha Sanchez and Conchita Martinez. So that was really the golden age of Spanish tennis, representing their country. It really was, and I guess it also helps to be uh, 19 years old when you can play. Um, how many sets did he play? He played the two five setters and then the four yeah. setter. You know yeah. what? So 14 sets of tennis in his in his last three matches wins the whole thing. Yep, no problem. He's he's uh, right there, right there, and available for his country. So you, you you tip your hat to him. Maybe if he was you know one of the older veterans, you'd be a little more careful. But I, but I guess at 19, why not? Yeah, you know, I think even though I mean, you look at his rise, I mean, last year was this really big coming out party. Uh, you won a ton of tournaments, and then the U.S. public got to really see him at the U.S. Open make a run. And then what do you know, 12 months later, he's the U.S. Open champion and the number one player in the world, and he's like the guy now, not the next guy. He's the guy. And uh he's really done it with humility. I think if you see him – Around the players' lounge or the locker room, everybody talks about 
He's just a simple kid. During Wimbledon this year, I ran into him in the grocery store. And oh, he was wow. just hanging out in a T-shirt and shorts. And, you know, if you were in tennis, you knew who he was. But, I mean, no one else knew who the guy was. Right. So and it was uh, – it, but it's he loves the sport. He loves he loves everything that goes with being a professional tennis player. This is his dream, and he's living it. And, and I really think, you know, last year was interesting to me because there was a lot of hype. He did win tournaments, but even in um, some of the setbacks he had, he always seemed to take it with grace and with the attitude of, you know, I'll be back or, you know, I just got to make improvements. He's not one of those kids that – actually, kids. He's not one of those young players where – you know, you get a lot of hype, and then you don't immediately live up to it, and then you kind of fall into a funk. He just, you know, kept working, kept working, kept working, and has proven to be – I mean, if you know tennis, you knew right away he was the real deal. But now everyone knows he is the real deal. He's the man, number one <laughs> in the world, Grand Slam champion, and he did it on a hard court. Um, yeah. I can't remember if it was um, Chris Fowler or, or one of the Macaros on the broadcast was saying how – Alcaraz actually prefers the hard courts, and you would think, you know, kid from Spain grew up idolizing Nadal that his, you know, first first major would probably, well, it's, it's kind of hard to say first major would be at the French Open because Rafa doesn't seem to want to ever let go. <laughs> he doesn't seem to ever want to let go of that. I mean, geez. That's right. Well, I, I really think that he, even though he idolized Rafael Nadal, his game to me looks more like a, an Agassi type, staying close to the baseline. Um, his forehand has mechanics more similar to Roger Federer. Um, doesn't have the, you know, the extreme follow through and the big wind up like Nadal has. And so he's able to play on quicker surfaces. Um, I think there are a couple of elements that, that a lot of the, uh, coaches and parents can kind of look at and kind of mold their approach to developing players. Juan Carlos Ferrero is a, former Grand Slam champion, um, finals of the U.S. Open. I think he won the French. Um, I want to say he got as high as number one in the world. But he he's did, been yeah. – yeah, he's been with this guy forever. So, you know, you can imagine a kid in a very small town goes to the local club or whatever and just picks up this game, not only to play it, but to fall in love with it. And then you've got some guy who's been there, done that, really – helping you take the right path. I don't want to say shortcuts because there are no shortcuts to success in anything you do, but the right path, which is, you know, really let's develop the technique first. Um, let's make sure we have the right mindset. I'm so impressed and always have been impressed with the temperament of this kid. I mean, it doesn't you can't tell if he's up or he's down. Very similar to Nadal. I think he's probably even seems to be calmer than Nadal because Nadal clearly has some OCD stuff with the hair and the picking of the shorts and like all that stuff. Like he's so wound up so tight and he plays with a certain intensity that has never been seen in tennis. Even like the likes of Jimmy Connors and Monica Sellis couldn't reach that intensity level. But Elkris seems to have such a balance of tactics and toughness um, and a love for the battle that I think will, if young kids start to really watch him, hopefully emulate that. Yeah, and what you what you were saying about um, the pairing with Juan Carlos Ferreira, I think it's a prime example of how um, it's not 
just the player and it's not just the coach, but when you get that right pairing, uh, what can happen? And to speak uh, um, to Alcaraz's demeanor, there was a match, I believe it was the quarters against Sinner, um, and Sinner was up in that match. And at one point, Alcaraz kind of has this look on his face as he's looking to his box. And Ferrero just kind of gives him a look like, hey, man, this is how it is. You, you got to find a way. Yeah. But but yeah. in a calm way. But in a calm way. And, and they even mentioned that on the broadcast. He's telling him, hey, you got to figure it out, kid. And he did. And then uh, as the tournament progressed to the weekend, you know, by the time he got to the final, he had that look like, you know, he's looking over to his box like, yeah, I got this. I know what to do. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lot of work through the juniors and through those, you know, smaller tournaments and then, you just keep playing matches, and you win, you lose, you learn the lessons, and he stayed humble through the whole process. I, I, I picked up on something when he was serving for the match in the finals, and he got up, I think, 30 love, and the box was going absolutely bananas, and Juan Carlos like was like looking around the box and just motioning with his hand, like, calm down. Yes, like, I saw just, that too. It's just 30 love, you're right? It's just, it's just 30 love. And the worthy opponent on the other side, he ain't going to give you anything yet. And that's, that's why he's in there. And that's why Alcaraz has turned out. Alcaraz clearly very coachable. Parents are in the background. How many times can you say in tennis that the parents are taking a step back and allowed the, the professional to coach the, the talent? And so I, all those pieces have to come together and, you know, when you see the Lendels in the boxes or the Michael Changs and the Boris Beckers and these guys that are coaching Andre Agassiz, when they're coaching Connors, I can go on and on. They're playing the match with them. And right. so when it's 30 love, they know it's not over by a long shot. We got to get the 40 first. And we're not signing autographs or taking uh, photo ops just yet. We got to close the deal out. And remember, if you go back to 2003, it was Juan Carlos Ferrero who let a golden opportunity slip against Andy Roddick. Right. And those those experiences stay with you with scar tissue for the rest of your life, the ones that got away. And yeah. Juan Carlos knows, like, listen, the, we got to seal the deal before we can start celebrating. Well, I didn't, I didn't feel bad for Juan Carlos that day because he had beaten Agassi the day before. And uh, <laughs> I, I may or may not have cried because Andre came in as the number one seed. He had won the Australian that year, and I thought he had yeah. a great chance to get another one. And I wanted yeah. to see Agassi and Roddick in the final, and JC took that away from me. So, uh, Well, that was the first time I felt that Andre looked, like, old. Yeah. And I remember in, I think it was 2000 or 99 when Sampras, Lost like back to back finals, maybe uh, the 2000, one that Hewitt... 2000 and 2001 uh, to Saffin and then to Hewitt. Yeah, and he just like it was, you know, he gets there, he's right there, and you're like, he no longer has that gear of youth that right. we all need. You, there's a gear that youth provides that uh, the you know the experience of the mind can't overcome. If you can't hit the ball, if your body can't get there, right. and Sampras was routed. Um, especially against Sap. Sappin was like, I've never seen, it was Ivan Drago from Rocky yeah. Four. And it was like, I was I'd never seen Sampras get manhandled like that, just completely played off the court. Yeah. And, uh, and the same thing when Juan Carlos beat Andre, it wasn't, you know, such an enormous, uh, match as far as Juan Carlos blowing him out, but it's, 
when the father time is undefeated, you can't beat it. He always is. And, and I forgot that two years after that, when Andre went all the way to the final against Roger, if you remember that match, Andre, uh, even the match, won the second set and then went up a break in the third set. And I sat up in my chair like, do we have a chance? And then yeah. like said, Federer turned it on. And then, you know, Federer and Father Time are the two of them <laughs> com- completely, right. completely unbeatable. Um, but like you said about uh, Juan Carlos telling him, telling Alcaraz, you know, calm down, it's only 30 love. You know, that kind of attitude was no more evident than in the quarterfinals. Sinner had a match point. And Sinner's kind of rented some space in the Alcaraz head. I mean, Sinner's had the best of them head-to-head recently. Um, and it's just Sinner is I, – I I view him as really a uh, Djokovic-like kind of player. Long, lean, very flexible, gets a lot of balls back, very very precise. He's a tough out. And um, as Sinner continues to work on his fitness, it, it's tough to beat that guy. And yeah. Alcaraz has had to figure it out, and he did it at the U.S. Open, but it took took a lot. And he used every tool in the toolbox, the same in the finals. He went forward more than he normally does just because he had to keep the point short. And he was out of gas, and there was nothing really left except for using other aspects of his game to win that uh, U.S. Open final. Yeah, and Sinner's got two matches this year that he can learn from. And, you know, he's young enough. I think he's got um, a good enough head on his shoulders to learn from it. The one, you know, uh, against Djokovic at Wimbledon where he was up two sets. Yep. And then having a match point um, against Alcaraz uh, a few weeks, just, just a few weeks ago. But you're right yeah. about him having uh, having space in, in Alcaraz's head. But he was able to adjust. And I... I think Sinner will do the same thing. You know, when Sinner talks, if I close my eyes, sometimes I hear Stefan Edberg. Ah, that's funny. Oh, that's man. funny. Oh, I we're lucky because at ESPN, um, Darren Cahill, who's part of that Sinner team, was with us every day, and we got to kind of get the behind the scenes, what was going on with the training, with the prep, with every match, what the game plan was through Darren Cahill. Mm-hmm. So it was. It's very interesting to see how Cahill has worked with, you know, number ones like Leighton Hewitt and Andre Agassi, and and how he's and even on the women's side with Halep and other players, how he really is impressed with Sinner's maturity. There's no doubt Alcaraz and Sinner are going to be playing a lot. It's going to be the Agassi Sampras kind of rivalry type of thing, you know, Nadal Federer, you know, these classic talents going head-to-head on all surfaces. And this is, I think, what, what exactly what tennis needed, and I think it's exactly what it needed from this U.S. Open. You know, last year was the return of fans um, yep. in attendance, and then we had no one expected Raducanu or Fernandez to be in the final. You, you, had that, <laughs> yeah. you know, you had that storyline on the final Saturday, and then on the final yep. Sunday you had Medvedev stopping history you know, stopping Djokovic from uh, winning the Grand Slam. So you had that yeah. storyline. So how do you top it? Well, you come in this year, and you've got Serena's farewell. Yep. You've got Rafa still playing. The the drama kind of in the background of Djokovic not being allowed to play. And so what's next? And I think with Alcaraz and Sinner, that quarterfinal match showed us what's next. And then later on, even 
you know, Alcaraz, Tiafo, Alcaraz, and Casper Ruud. Uh, Tiafo had a, a a great tournament, um, and I think that also was good for. I mean, it's just, I'm stating the obvious here for American men's tennis. Oh yeah, I mean, we're we're the American men are coming. I mean, there there's no doubt. I mean, are we coming? The, we're 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 going. I mean, oh, they, right. I would be shocked if Francis doesn't leave with two or three majors. Um, you got. I'm watching Tommy Stockholm Paul right now. He uh, there's uh, from Corda and Opelka. Taylor Fritz is going to win a cup. I mean, the, the num. I love numbers, and you yeah. put as many numbers in the main draw as you do. These guys in the top hundred. I think we have 15, 16 possibly in the top hundred. Sock is on his way back. He's a former top ten player. Yep. I mean, it, and they all get along. They really – Jensen Brooksby um, is another extremely talented player. And so we Very interesting. That, that many numbers, and I, all of them go into the tournaments now looking to win them, not looking to get the T-shirt and get the early prize money, but to actually beat the legends and win these trophies. And so it's, I think it's a, it's a great result, um, and they're still maturing. I, I still think, you know, the last – Tiafo looks around the stadium, the better. <laughs> I mean, he's treating Arthur Ashe Stadium against Alcaraz, and he's got – I'm looking at, like, definitely eight people, eight spots in the crowd. Normally, you have one spot. You look at your box, and that's your support system, and that's it. I think I counted seven or eight where he was, like, different areas where he was looking up to, you know, his NBA buddies and his, all his celebrity buddies and – I'm like, dude, you have got to look in, man. This is not an exhibition. You can actually win this tournament. Interesting. I, I no, I, t- I totally know what you're saying, and I felt like so much of uh, of his run, he fed off the crowd. But this is interesting. You think you think perhaps he got a little distracted in that match, or well, listen, compared to the way he used to be, he's he's laser focused. Yes, compared yes, to the fair. way he used to be. I thought he played a, a tremendous match against Kyrgios at Washington this year. If you watch that match in D.C., yes. it was incredible. Both those guys, extremely talented, unbelievable for the game. But it was like the first time I saw Francis, like he couldn't lose focus. And he's in his hometown, but he had the focus just to compete against the talent of Kyrgios. And so the the older he gets, in my opinion, Francis will learn how to, okay, I'll see my my celebrity buddies or my Hollywood friends after the match. But, like, I've got to t- – it doesn't help anybody if I lose. I've got to continue to win. And I, I'm so impressed with Wayne Ferreira, who works with him, former top ten player. I know him extremely well. And two years ago, maybe three years ago, when they started working together – he said, you know, we just have a long-term plan. And the number one thing is, like, when he's stretching out before his workouts, I take the phone away. Because he'd be, there's Francis firing up on the phone while he's stretching and doing his resistance bands. Like, no, this is, you, this is your job. This is working. And so getting Francis to lock into the professional side, professionalism, and it's it will and it's funny because early on everybody was jacking up all worked up about his forehand technique. I'm like, 
guy's the number one junior in the world. What's wrong with his forehead? I mean, and you don't say anything now. The thing is a rifle. It sure is. An absolute can cannon. And uh, I think his secret weapon, honestly, is his backhand. I, I don't know why the opponents keep going to his backhand because he doesn't miss it. It's deep and it's extremely precise. And he can sell you on the cross court and then sneak it down the line in and win points. And that's with the hand cannon forehand hitting, just waiting for anything short. So he's not getting worse. This dude in the next five years is coming. Tiafo is a superstar. It's good to hear you say that. Um, I'll I tell you one thing. If Wayne Ferreira tells me to put my phone away, I'm putting it away. I've seen what he used to do to, <laughs> what he used to, do to rackets on the court. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I will say it again. It, it's a two-way street because the coach can – can have a plan and things like, but the player has to believe it, trust in it, and follow it. And Francis has. The other thing, which is I think is is very important, is that Wayne has also recognized that you have to let Francis be Francis. Mm-hmm. If he wants to do the LeBron James thing and robot it around, whatever, you know, let Francis be Francis. He plays his very best, and he's happy playing that way. It's where can the coach, you know, continue to find elements to improve on um, with Francis where Francis doesn't like, hey, man, I want to have fun. I don't want this to be, you know, a not fun league type of deal. I want to go out and have fun with my shots, my tweeners, the fans, like all of that. And I think it's a really good mix between player and coach. It's a very, very, uh, I guess, slim balance to – you know, to be, it's always good to be involved w- with the people, but um, like you said, well, say, is it forty love or is it thirty forty? Right. I mean, exactly. that's, you know, that's a big deal. I do like the way he he really understands how to use the crowd, you know, on scoreboard pressure. Like if he's if he's up four three or five four and he needs a little juice or to put a little pressure on his opponent, he'll go to the crowd and get them all jacked up. And uh, so he he's using the crowd like Connors did in 91, and really good players know how to use that extra element as a factor. Um, you mentioned the match that he played with Kyrgios uh, uh, in Washington. If we could, let's jump to Kyrgios, because uh, after making the Wimbledon final, and there's a lot of talk of Kyrgios playing a lot more focused, um, do you find it to still be as, frust- as frustrating to watch him uh, as it is for me? It, it's an absolutely – it's a difficult watch for me, but I can't look <laughs> away because he's so good. He's so yeah. talented. He makes it look effortless. But, I mean, I cannot take all the yapping and, uh, you know, all the complaining to the box. I could, I could not sit in that box. I don't know. Those people – I don't know how they do it, but, uh, you know, he misses a serve up 40 love. It's the girlfriend's fault. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's how he, what we call a controlled burn. It's how he burns off the nerve. It's how he burns off the frustration. He, you know, I mean, we all have seen him completely implode and lose it. Um, that is not the Nick we see today. I think Wimbledon um, proved to himself, and he he always knew he had it, but no matter what the experts say, how much talent you have, the reality is he has to believe it. And he has, I mean, he's, I think he's the only player 
to have beaten Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic the first time he ever played. And I think Leighton Hewitt did it, but Leighton Hewitt was already established like a top player, and those guys were young. But, you know, for Kyrgios to have, you know, remarkable results, you know, and those are one-offs. When you start putting together runs like at Wimbledon, U.S. Open, and he's playing singles and doubles, um, I just think maturity, just like Francis Tiafo, maturity is a massive weapon because you don't panic in situations. You've been there. You're, you're going to hit the right shot at the right time, and you're going to handle adversity so much better. And for Nick, I, I love watching. I believe he is so good for the game. And he's both his parents aren't doing well in Australia. He's been gone for a long time, I think six or seven months, if not longer. And to uh, try to understand why he just can't play the game like, you know, maybe Roger plays the He's got to play the game the way he does. And it's working out for him. Um, I, I just think he's got a lot of stuff off the court that's on his mind. And it's tough to be an Australian or a South African and you're traveling, you know, more than half the year away from your, your home. Right. And I have a lot of respect for those players to do it. And I, I'm excited for Nick. Uh, unfortunately, he's not playing Davis Cup. I know why. He's probably going to shut it down and go for the Australian. But as you know, you saw that that uh, press conference after he lost at the U.S. Open. And he – he was almost in tears like he let everybody down who wanted him to win. Right. And I, I I, really, I mean, I could talk to him. I, w- I would say, listen, you know, it doesn't matter if you win or lose. Your fans in this game appreciates you for you coming out and making it a show and making it fun and for the tweeners and, and for everything. That's why we come to watch you. And we want you to win for you. So I, I, I think he's, He's getting better, but man, when I saw that press conference and he's saying how much he let everybody down, that that's tough. It's tough to live with that way, or you're letting your sponsors down, and you, you can't do it that way. You got to go out. He gave it his best. It was a little short, um, but he's he's must see TV. You have to watch. Do you think uh, before he calls it a career, he gets at least one slam? Well, I tell you, aren't those windows tight though? You know, you, you they, think maybe really there's are. a window. There's a window right now. There's a window right now. And I, I really thought when he took that first set at Wimbledon against Djokovic, and Djokovic was all out of sorts. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, this is your moment. I mean, can you honestly just hang in there long enough and keep holding serve? And, and I mean, that was his moment. And. uh of course, Djokovic, I mean, he knows in a best of five set match. He'd been to 38 major finals. And, yeah. and it's like, oh, Kyrgios says, well, I won doubles in Australia this year. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like, it's not even the same competitor. But I, I don't want to say I'd be shocked, but um, he's capable, of course. But Alcaraz isn't getting worse. Stenner's not getting worse. The Americans aren't getting worse. You can go on and on. And until, you know, Federer officially calls it, until Sinner, I'm, I'm sorry, until Djokovic and Nadal are done, that's a lot of talent floating around those majors that you've got to navigate. And yeah. there are players that we don't even know out there that are just coming, right? 
We yeah. have no, I mean, there are players in the next two or three years that were playing juniors or some cat playing college tennis that we don't even know. Uh, ben Shelton, man, dangerous Ben Shelton. I'm stuck up on this dude. I mean, he is, he is apple stock and he ain't going away. That guy has every tool in the toolbox and he's got a great mindset, faith-based kid. Um, so, uh, can Kyrgios do it? Absolutely. But will there be another opening? I mean, how many times do you get a default in the semis of Wimbledon? Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, it's like it, it was sitting right there on grass. So um, I think the game would really benefit if he did. But, uh, you know, as long as he keeps playing and I love him playing doubles, that uh, I, I think you, know, you just never know. He's He's got – He's he's got a serve that really hurts those guys like Medvedev and these guys who stand way far back. He's yeah. got a beautiful slider. He's got a great cannonball down the tee, and he's just fearless. I mean, that guy will try drop shots and trick shots. I I, just, I love watching him play, and I just have to I just have to hold on when he starts chewing out the box. Yeah, that's. Uh, that's tough. I can't imagine what the party in Melbourne would be like if he were to pull it off there. Oh, but... can you imagine? Oh, <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Um, but, you know, you're right about the, about the window, the window of opportunity. It's, it's the window of opportunity being slim. I actually still, here we are sitting in September, I still can't believe Nadal pulled off the Australian Open this year. Oh, that was one of the – I'm watching it, and you know it's in the middle of the night up here. Yeah, in North America, and I was like two sets of love down, and he's sweating bullets. How humid! I mean, he they're having to wipe the court. He was sweating so much. I'm like, this guy. I think this guy's gonna die on the court today. <laughs> I mean, I realized like I, I really think this guy could like die, physically give everything he had, and just you know fall o- fall over on the court. Um, yeah, that that was so impressive. I. How about the drop off from the Russians? I, I think you know that the war in the Ukraine has really weighed heavily on the Russians. I agree. And um, there, you know, Medvedev. Talk, you know, we talk about how small these windows are. I mean, <clears throat> it was at that tournament. You're like, he's up two sets to love. He's going to win his second major in a row. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're saying this. That's in January. The next month, February, Russia invades the Ukraine. And everybody, I mean, the world goes sideways on and off the court for these guys. And Rublev, I mean, he had a nice, you know, catching off. Nice U.S. Open, but, you know, you think, like, they'd be doing better, and it's just kind of, it, they're not the same competitors. Yeah. Uh, the, the drop-off was, I think, uh, not being able to play – uh, Wimbledon, even though he may not have been, you know, a heavy favorite, I, I feel like that kind of uh, maybe interrupted some of. Uh, oh, no, no doubt. Ne- yeah. No ne- doubt. Ne- I mean, you're out there and he's posting, he's playing golf and this and that. You know, it's the biggest term we have in the year, in the calendar year. It's the big, it's the tournament that you start thinking about, dreaming about as a kid, and to be your wherever you are and wherever you go. And I think the we call them the no flags because you know you see on the scoreboard yeah. everybody's flag and then they're the no flags and them and the Belarusians and so it's just weird and I've been out there because I've been coaching Coco Vanderway 
And those players' lounges are in those practice courts. Like, they're the Ukraines, and they're the Russians, and they're the Belarusians, and everybody else. And it's like, this is a weird environment. And uh, Are they all, you know, separate? Or, and, and Not all, you know, I mean, some of them. Remember, it's like you grew up next to each other. So I grew up in Michigan, so I know it's imagine if Illinois and, and Michigan were at war. Well, I know I grew up playing doubles and practicing and traveling with kids in Illinois. It's right. the same thing. These I know, you know, there was a there was a girl from Belarus that was playing with a girl from Ukraine over the summer at a tournament and the government called the girl the Belarusian government called her up and said, Don't come home. What are you playing with that Ukraine? So those countries and those governments are watching what their ambassadors are doing. These, what the Americans don't understand is, you know, from these countries around the world, these international athletes are superstars. I mean, they're massive ambassadors. Like when uh, Rebekina won Wimbledon this year, even though she represents Kazakhstan, she lives in Moscow. She was born in Moscow. Her parents live in Moscow. She's Russian. And right. so what does the Russian Federation come out with? Well, you know, we won Wimbledon. You couldn't ban us all. You know, it's, it's so when you're when you're that big of a sports kind of celebrity and the focus is on how you represent your country and your culture, it's a big deal. We, we don't feel that in the United States. You know what I mean? We, we come together, what, sometimes for the Olympics. I mean, Davis Cup, we talked about that. We don't have that national pride like they do in other countries. We just don't. We like our regional sports professional teams or our college teams. But, I mean, when was the last time you can think of – I mean, Serena's beyond a a nation, right? What we witnessed with Serena was, you know, a a global global love for what she gave to the sport of tennis and what she gave to issues and things like that. So I don't even look at that as like – it was beyond the borders of the United States. But, um, yeah, it, it's just interesting to see how the Russians have reacted to, you know, what's going on and how it affected them. Because Medvedev doesn't look like the same competitor. He I mean, he looks, like, he looks like he needs a timeout and go on, a, go on a vacation to a club med or something. And I really feel like it was one blunder after the other because <clears throat> as much as, you know, I did not like seeing – Russia invade the Ukraine. I don't know what it accomplishes to ban Russian players from Wimbledon, and then I don't know what it accomplishes to strip Wimbledon of of points. Yeah, it's because it's more so people than just you know yeah. Russians got um it got penalized. In a sense. Yeah, no, no one got points. Someone went there, it's, you know, yeah. like you said, uh, Rabakina. She wins her first Grand Slam, and it is, I mean, that's great. Yeah. You know, you'll never take that away from her, but, you know, no points for that. I don't know. I, no, listen, if we go on, that could be its own podcast. But the uh, I was in the camp. I mean, honestly, I, I respect everybody's right to play and things. But, man, the war specifically, I know this is off of what we normally talk about, but it's not like Army versus Army. Right. And I know, you know, 20% of the homes in Ukraine are destroyed. And I, I forgot which Ukrainian player after Wimbledon. She got to the third or fourth round, and they said, "Are you going to be able to go home um, after Wimbledon?" She goes, "My my apartment was bombed. Like there's nothing to go back to." Oof. And you know, because it is such a different type of 
human catastrophe that, you know, I, my feeling was that you can freeze their ranking, freeze their points, but until this thing is worked out, um, because there's such suffering, it's just hard to see how, you know, those players still get the benefit of playing in a, in the world that is free and, you know, free speech and, and all that stuff. Because I, the Ukrainians, you know, I'm, I've seen them. They, you know, they have nowhere to go. You know, yeah. they, I mean, it's just, it's, I, I, it's brutal. And there have been, you know, confrontation with coaches, confrontation with players. Um, it's just, it's a mess. And there are no easy answers. And we just got to keep talking and keep supporting, you know, you know, peace and, and all that stuff. But man, I mean, they raised $2 million at the U.S. Open for Ukrainian aid. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. And, uh, I don't know. I just, uh, it's going to be an interesting 23. How's that? As, as we start to see things develop and, um, but I really hope, you know, just everything just gets back to whatever normal used to be and that Medvedev can be him again and all these guys and they can just be proud of where they're from and the people they, you know, the country they represent. Now it's, it's just a shame deal. It is. And you can't get around it. Yeah, you're right. Um, before I jump to the, uh, to the women and, and I don't want to keep you too long. Um, there's one more guy, one more man that I want to talk about because I am still of the belief that Sitsipas still hasn't gotten over that 2021 French Open final. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know how else to explain it. It's just there's – I mean, he did come back this year during the clay season and uh, he repeated in, in Montreal, Monte Carlo. Yep. Um, and I thought, okay, maybe seeing the clay is, you know, um, going to re-energize him or, or put him in a better headspace. But, you know, he just kind of looks lost at times on the court. Yeah. And I, re- I mean, he got extremely rattled by Kyrgios at Wimbledon. <laughs> oh, no, no. So, yeah, I mean, the, you can you remember, what was it, last year at the Open, he went for the bathroom break, and he went back to Manhattan to get some stuff. And <laughs> took forever. And, you know, I mean, there are just all these things that seem to be, like, it just seems to happen to him, all these kind of unforced errors. And I, I felt he should have been defaulted in the Kyrgios match at Wimbledon. I mean, he even though he didn't hit anybody, he, you know exactly when you're firing a ball that way. Oh yeah. You know where it's going. I mean, I'm sorry. You know exactly what you're saying. I mean, in the Djokovic thing when he knocked out the guy, the lineswoman in uh, 20, like he didn't know she was there, but he knew where that ball was going. Right. And on court one at Wimbledon, like there's no backstop there. There's nothing but fans, and he rifled it. Um, and of course, you know, Kyrgios. He, he got right in his, this guy's headspace. Um, I, I think Sissy Pass is this very, very talented player, but I don't think he's got enough talent to overcome. He, he's got like a, uh, he, like you said, it's a mind thing, but he doesn't really have like the huge serve. He, does, he has got to do it in many different ways. And um, 
So I just think it's very interesting to see how the last couple of years, like you said, he's been lost since losing at that two sets to love lead. And the field is caught up, right? Yes. I mean, you, you can't say, is he really a top five player? I'd say top 10, maybe, right? I mean, you could name 10, 15 guys and you're like, yeah, you could pick them. Like, yeah, it's, it's so I think he, he can regroup and look at 23 as an opportunity because the field is caught up to him. Does, and, he, need to, uh, does he need to get away from his father? You know, I, I really like his dad. I, yeah. I, I like, um, I think that will happen naturally. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's not even the dad thing. I think uh, Sissy Paz has to just, and I, I say this throughout this podcast, mature. I think he, I mean, he's still young. The other thing is, I think he's got a very kind heart. And I think when, I do know this because I played, you got to be a killer. Right. And you can't have a soft heart when you're out there and you're competing and, you know, it comes down to millimeters from in and out, win and lose. And I, I just don't see that killer instinct in him yet. And I think all the stuff we've been talking about has affected that heart of his that um, he wants to be loved. And Djokovic is kind of like that, right? Mm-hmm. He wants to be loved and, you know, that thing he's in the fans and he's never going to be, Djokovic is never going to be Federer and there's, he's not going to be Nadal. He's not going to be, now Serbia, yes, but globally the the world doesn't see Djokovic like those other two guys. Um, but historically we've never seen anything like those two guys. Um, but I think Sissy Pop is kind of like that. He's, he wants to be loved and it, it bothers him. And I think it affects his performance, to be honest. Instead of going out there and saying, I don't care if you're with me, against me, I'm here to compete as hard as I can. Yeah. And I think it's tough for Sissy Pop to just commit to that. It's there. We haven't even talked about this guy. I'm watching yeah. him on the sidelines in, in Germany following his Davis Cup team. That guy is, if he doesn't get hurt, he probably beats Nadal at the French this year. So he's playing at an unreal level. I mean, we almost are looking at like the 90s with the WTA with all those Hall of Famers. Right. Remember, you know, from the Williams sisters, and you had Davenport and, and Kleisters it, and Capriati yeah. and Pierce and Arancha and Conchita. I mean, you go in and, and I mean, just like all these Hall of Famers. I think we're looking at this right now. We're looking at some – because someone's going to be winning these majors. And it's not going to be just two or three guys. I think right. it's going to be a, a bunch of players that are going to dip in and go after Alcaraz now, the new number one. So exciting. So exciting. Uh, I sent out a tweet to the U.S. Open on Monday morning, and it just said, hey, I miss you. Call me. I am hurting right now for – for Grand Slam tennis, this always happens to me when the open <laughs> when the open ends. The best time is, is when Paris starts because you know as soon as the French Open ends, you know you blink your eyes and Wimbledon starts. Yeah, but um, I mean we still have Davis Cup, we still have indoor tournaments. I've got the Tennis Channel on in my house twenty four seven. Okay, okay, but okay, but I I want to stop you there because I I need your take on this because I really respect your take. You're you're a lifer. Um, remember, I just want to. Keep keep the faith. You got Labor Cup coming up. 
Yes. And the big three are playing. So, like, I cannot wait for that. But I need I'm, – I'm back home watching my U.S. Open, right? And okay. what I love is what ESPN isn't on, I get to see the replays and perspectives from Davenport and Anna Cohn and Martina Navratilova and Tracy Austin. And for yes. three days, I'm getting pickleball and oh, God. volleyball. I need your take, man. I need your take because I I was ready – to cancel my subscription. I love those guys at Tennis Channel, but I'm sorry. I lost it. I mean, what is it next? Like the World Axe Throwing League? I mean, I lost this it is too. not good. Luke, I lost it too because when the Open, like you said, when the Open was done, I'd either turn over there for their analysis or sometimes yeah. when Tennis Channel, you know, either when they don't have the coverage yeah, they'll run a classic or whatever, and and I'll yeah. go right from today's tennis to to you know the '83 Australian Open. On yes, I'm good with that. You yeah. know what I mean? But I saw pickleball and and lost my mind. And then to make it worse, so I live uh, not too far from a park, and uh, I, I where I live now in Myrtle Beach, I don't really have a hitting partner, but yeah. they recently built uh you know a wall for you know you can just yeah. against the wall. So I go there, but yeah. they've taken more than half of the tennis courts <laughs> and converted them to pickleball yeah. courts. Yeah. And I'm yeah. going there and I said, I can't get rid of, I can't get rid of this pickleball stuff. They're, they're playing <laughs> I, I, I can't stand the sound of, of the rackets when they're hitting it. Yeah. And yeah. then it's on the tennis channel. No, it drives you crazy. I am not with that at all. I'm not. I could, that. I mean, I, I could not, I know why they did it. I mean, it's a time by ESPN has the right. I, I get all that, but I'm telling you, I I would love to know all the feedback they got from from all of us, right? That really relish and respect their their team that really fill in some of the blanks that ESPN can't because they're off the air and they're showing, you know, the you know, whatever, the college football or the NFL and and things are going on. I mean, I really turn the test channel as as our sports network. It's Absolutely. what it is. Listen, and I'm, I'm, I'm I grew watching. up. Yeah. I grew up without without cable. Okay, I didn't get. We didn't get cable in our house till I was fourteen. Okay, so okay. I had to rely on network television for the Grand Slams, which meant I read the papers during the week, and then on the weekends I spent all all the weekends I spent watching the Slams. Yeah. Every now and then NBC would pick up the RCA Championships in Indianapolis or something like that. I never got to watch the Australian Open. Yeah. Uh, before 94, you know what I mean? So when we finally sure. got an all-tennis channel, yeah. I was all in, all yeah. in. So, yeah, yeah. This, this definitely bothered me. Um, I want <laughs> <laughs> to jump quickly to the women because, we you know, we've done so much already. Um, sure. This women's tournament, I came in, and so I picked Pagula to win it, right? Yeah, that's a good pick. Because I felt like, I felt like Coco was right there, and I felt like, Pagula has been, you know, you've you've gotten to watch the steady steady rise of her game. She's one one of those players you can actually see her getting better, getting better, getting better, getting better. And I yeah. thought she had a really good shot. And I also felt like uh, Iga was not quite was, was nowhere near the level that she was in the springtime. So I thought she was very beatable. But what ended yeah. up happening, of course, is she had a couple of matches, you know, going through that tournament where things weren't going well, but she was able to turn it around. Yeah. And was it just a case of that 
she uh, was she just better at the right time than the rest of the field? Well, I mean, she she's really talented, right? I mean, it's uh, it's so easy to just see the athlete flying around and this and that, and um, but she she is a problem solver. She travels with a team that includes a, a mental coach, yes. a sports psychologist, and so you've got you know she's really complete. She's she's so locked in to win. I think she's wound a little too tight, to be perfectly honest. Doesn't look like you know she's having that much fun, but that's how she competes. She she idolizes Nadal. She tries to be that kind of competitor, and she is. Um, she's a problem solver. She didn't. It's docu- I I would not have advised her to complain about the balls and the this. How, I, there was a match point. I don't know which match. It could have been. I don't think it was a Pagula. It was some match point that she had, and on match she gets the match point and she changes racket. Oh Remember that? yes, yes. I, was that in the final? I don't remember if it was in the final. Yeah, but I I could not. But like I don't. I've never seen that. Now if you, I think it was the, point, the semis against Sabalenka. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There you go. And I'm like, God, that's bizarre that yeah. you you did that. But I mean, she's she's got a lot of stuff rolling around between the ears. Um, but no one hits a ball like that. So much heavy top. So when you you Pagula played her, Sabalenka played her, who are drive the ball well. You got to you got to commit to staying on top of that ball and driving that heavy top back. Um, and you know you look at you know Spitek, she she's going to give you an opportunity. She's yeah. she's going to do some double faults. She'll go away on a walkabout mentally, emotionally. She'll give you an opportunity. Um, I thought it was a good pick for you, Pagula. I had Coco Goff. Um, I thought it, it was really her time, but uh, you know, it, it just it's it's just I could I love women's tennis right now. It's just it's, it's so up good. for anybody who wants it, man. Anybody so who good. wants it. I um, yeah. you know, speaking of uh, of Sabalenka, can she she she's she can still win one. Oh, of yes? course, of course. Yeah, if she I mean, can get, someone, she can consistently yeah. get that serve uh, under control. <laughs> well, she goes through. I mean, just rolling it in is not an option for whatever reason. I don't know why, yeah. but like you're rolling in, you know, double digit double faults. You're like, I don't know. If, I mean, I, I'm always I'm a situational server. If I'm up forty love or forty fifteen, I may throw another one thirty as a second. So yeah. my opponent doesn't see another look because I, I feel very confident I'm still going to win this game. But she's doing it at 30-40. She's doing it at love 40. She's doing I mean, she's just throwing two first serves in and rolling the dice. And it's not like she can't hit ground strokes. She's very good off the ground. She's a great mover, outstanding volleyer. But uh, I just don't know her situational approach to the pressure is uh, – is good that you can really rely upon. Like Pliskova is another one. Yeah, that she should have at least one or two majors by now. But like, I just don't trust their judgment in big moments, and they go for really weird shots. And uh, you know, I, I love my Djokovic's, my Nadal's. I love my Pagu. I, I love people who put the ball in the court and force the other side. You know, they'll hit big shots from time to time. But when you're relying on nothing but just weapons, um, you get in trouble. And so this game will always be one on who's the most consistent, who puts – not pushes, 
but can find that rally ball. And that's Djokovic, and that's Chris Everett, and that's, you know, everybody that's, that's won a lot of matches out here. And yeah. you gotta hit with power sometimes, but the, the big hitters, and they don't, they don't think their way through things. They just hit their way through situations. It's always scary to me. And that's one thing the Williams sisters never really got enough credit for is how smart they were as, as professional tennis players, how, how good they played under pressure. And they weren't just these big, strong power players. They're way more than that. Um, before I close with the Williams sisters, um, now that she is no longer the U.S. Open champion and she's not carrying around that pressure, do we see some improvement or a resurgence from Emma Raducanu next year? Well, I mean, I always go, your result is reality. You know, that's where you are. And she's, I think, 83 this week in the world live rankings. Um, she, uh, you know, that's where she is. And to me, the the situation is her dad has to stop, like, firing coaches. You know, if you got to sign a deal, you got to sign – whether it's Terzinoff right now or whoever's working with her, Jimmy Arias uh, was kind of consulting with her down at IMG Academy. Everybody that works with her that I've talked to loves working with her. She's a delight. But you like you don't book, you know, you, you don't book much security on the amount of coaches they fired. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, she's going to be fine. Is she a top twenty player? I think so, but um, she doesn't look happy. Last year we covered her as she was making her run through the qualifying, unbelievable run, didn't lose a set in 10 matches um, at the U.S. Open, but she was, she was happy that she was out of, out of school. She just finished her, you know, her A-levels in England, which is like her SATs and her finals. So she was really a professional tennis player for the first time and could – focus on playing tennis and she loved the travel and the lifestyle and then this magical moment happened and I've yet to see that smile come back and you know when she walks on the court and when she competes it looks like she is under so much pressure and this this magnifying glass is just of of just intensity on everything she does and it will take maybe two years or so to get used to that. If I was her, I would call uh, any Murray and get his perspective on how to handle, you know, all of those pressures. I'd That's call, a great call. That's a great call. Serena Williams, I would call Roger Federer, just anybody I can put on uh, speed dial that lives uh, like that, like the Michael Jordans or the Andre Agassi, the Tiger Woods of the world, and just, just empty your basket. Right? Yeah. And just say, hey man, this is what I'm feeling. You know, what, what's your practice schedule? What's your, what's your tournament schedule? All those things. Because right now she's, she's 80 in the world. That's reality. I wish you'd play more doubles. I wish you'd play with someone like Bethany Maddox Sands, who yes. makes life fun. I mean, yeah. life, <laughs> hanging out with her. I mean, life uh, is great. And you know, so, we were uh, watching the, um, um, on the, I don't mean to cut you off there on ESPN yeah. and, it was, I think it was in between the semis the other day where they had that little uh, gap and they had the, the desk set up outside. And I, I'm watching with my, with my 12 year old son and my mom. And my mom goes, who's that? 
and I had to explain that. I said, well, that's Bethany Maddox Sands. <laughs> she's, she's a rock star. She is she's a, a rock star. She jumps off of the television. Yeah, I think, you know, honestly, I think we're lucky to have her in tennis. I think her destiny, if she wanted to make a move, would be like Good Morning America, you know, one of one of these really big programs where she could really shine outside of sport, to be honest. She is lifestyle. She is she's such a I don't know if I can say badass. I mean she's she's just a great human being and I love her as a commentator. I just uh love being around her. Her husband is amazing and uh yeah, the sport is better when she's around. Um Luke, it's unfair to ask you or anyone else to, you know, in a few words, say what Serena Williams has meant to tennis. Um, but when you saw the appreciation and the love um, she received, you know, what will you remember most about her? Well, I I can't separate Venus and Serena. Okay. I look at them as a package deal, of course. My brother and I and my sisters played, and it was always the tennis was the sport that we played as a family. It was our glue sport. It didn't matter our gender. It didn't matter our age. Our grandparents played. Our parents played. And seeing the movie King Richard is just a, a window between the ages of 9 and 14 um, of kind of like how it started um, and the dreams that, that Richard had for them and the confidence he had in them the sacrifices they made. So I look at them as not a, a individuals, but a, as really a package deal and uh, as a team. And they did it together. And in 97, when Arthur Ashe Stadium opened, I saw them there because Venus received the wild card at age 17 um, and she, before she played her first match. And Murphy and I were walking through uh, the tunnel down there at Arthur Ashe Stadium, and they were coming the other way, uh, passing us by, I remember specifically they just had these big smiles and they had the beads in their hair. And I just, I remember specifically stopping them and telling Venus, like, Venus, win the tournament. Like, <laughs> you're not here just to, like, you're the wall card and it's your first time and everything. Like, win the tournament. And she gets to the finals. And I've always been very proud of that moment that I was, like, saw just this love and this bounce. Remember she used to win? And Venus used to bounce up and down at the, yes. at the net waiting for her opponent. So to shake hands. Yes. The shake hands. And I loved that. And, um, and I just, it, from the very first time that I ever saw them compete and play, it was when you first turn pro, you're so excited to get your player's badge and you walk in the locker room and you go and you go to the player's lounge and you see these people you idolize. And the reason you really played and wanted to get to that level, and then you um, practice with these guys and these girls, and it's amazing. And when I saw them, you, you're really happy to take part. When I saw them, it was the first time, and I've never seen this before or since, they were there not to take part, but to take over. And that's exactly what they did. And they, they had such a massive impact. Um, around the world on so many different levels. But to me, number one, they came to dominate. And they predicted it, and it was a little bit Muhammad Ali-ish, like we're going to be the greatest that you've ever seen, and they did it. And they are the undisputed 
heavyweight champions of the tennis world. And there's no doubt about it. Like it's, you can't, there aren't words big enough to talk about their impact. And if you go into tennis right now and you go to the public courts, if you go to junior tournaments, if you go to college at all levels, if you go to the minor leagues right now in the qualifying of some $15,000 events, you will see women of color and men of color and boys and girls that are playing because of them and because of the movie more recently and, and what she, her impact, what she, what they all did to, to really show that tennis can be a pathway out of Compton or a, a pathway to wherever your genes are. And I respected that while they were playing, they got their degrees um, in education, that they were always there for the kids and the fans and for each other. And um, I, I really think that speech where it really hit me when she said, you know, there's no Serena without Venus. And they're locking up and Venus is crying. And that that meant everything to me. That That said everything to me what it was all about. It was about those two, those two together coming into this game to do something that had never been ever seen before. And um, I'm just very proud to to uh, have known them, to know them, and to have witnessed just excellence. Wow. You talk about uh... – Putting a bow on something. <laughs> wow! You know, what I mean? you know what I mean. I mean, what, I know what, exactly what you what mean. Because did, when 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 Serena said that, and then they cut to Venus, and oh. you saw Venus get emotional. I'm, I'm yeah. look. I'm not afraid to tell you. I was sitting. I got emotional looking at the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Venus is the big sister. You know, and Venus has Venus takes a backseat to nobody. And but she she loves her family and she loves her sister so much and she's so proud of her sister that it didn't matter how many titles or how much money Venus won or Sarita won she she's got her sister's back and she and Serena's right Serena knows it there is no Serena if it wasn't for Venus like making you know paving the way being out in front doing it and uh, if you go back to 99 Venus had not won a major yet. Yep. And Serena wins the major, the U.S. Open. And you, just like this year, looking at Venus, Venus wasn't jealous. She wasn't pissed off. She was as happy, probably more ecstatic to watch her sister win it, even though it was like her destiny. She was supposed to be the first. She was out front. And you know what they did after they um, – after what I think it was before, I, I'm not sure what was first, but um, yeah, I think it was after they won the doubles together. They went and won the doubles. Yep, and they were so giddy and they were so happy, and it was just like, you know, it's a di- they're you know they're different people now and everything, but boy, those early years where they are just here, it's like stay out of my way. We're having fun and we're kicking butt, and it was just every turn of it, I loved it. You know, I feel like I did appreciate it while it was happening, but now that, you know, we're at the end, I look back and I say, man, man, did we have it good. Yeah, and the only thing I regret, and I, I wish um, it could have happened, but it wasn't wasn't in the cards, that Arthur Ashe would have had more runway. 
and lived through this amazing run by the Williams sisters because he, I, I, I knew Arthur Ashe and yeah. he, he was extra, I mean, anything you read, you have to multiply it by a million because he was, he was so kind and insightful and, and legendary and it, he, he made you feel special anytime he spoke to you and he, he knew who you were and he knew that you had a, you know, I had a bad forehand or I needed to work on my footwork. He, he just, he took the time to just inspire you. And I just always wondered what if, what if Arthur was around and could have mentored them? What, what could have, what other things could have happened? And I know they've had Billy Jean King and Billy has been an unbelievable mentor to both of them. And I love the fact uh, that when Serena walked off the court after her last match, there was Billy right there in the corner to give her a high five as she walked back into the, uh, into Arthur Ashe Stadium in the locker room. But if Arthur still was with us, um, what kind of, you know, impact greater than what they've already had. And I, and already Serena, I think she was on Good Morning America or, She's already, you know, doing stuff. She's not stopping. She's she's still rocking. So she was I, walking the runway for Vogue the other day. For I know. Fashion Week. My goodness. I know. I know. I mean, that's that's to me. Uh, that's how great they are, her and Venus. And uh, we will never see the likes of them again. No. Nope. We we were we are blessed to have seen it. We absolutely are. I love this game so much. It it's really a special place, huh? And you have to prove it. You can't run out the clock. You got to serve it out. And uh, yeah, it's Luke, a what's strong up? survive. What's uh, what's up? What's next for you? What's what's going on for you the rest so, of the uh, year? Working with Coco Vanderway. So we got a tournament coming up at the uh, beginning of next month in San Diego. So we'll see where that goes. She's around 120-ish live okay. ranking right now. So uh, the plan is to make a run and get to top 80, which puts her in the main draw of Australia. And those are the big paydays. Those are the big points. And um, so if uh, San Diego doesn't go well, I think we're going to um, bounce down to some smaller tournaments and get some wins before the end of the year and then work our tail off. There's no off season in today's world. And you got to get to the gym and physically get as fit as you possibly can. The tennis is there. So I'm doing that and doing some charity events and things. And uh, my mom, my mom has a big, birthday coming up the big 8-0 so wow she's uh winning the eight game pro set this year 8-0 so we're going to be celebrating with her and just you know just being blessed and honored to be part of this game well listen um when the when the season kicks back around early next year uh i'll get in touch maybe we can talk before australia but i i know you did something did you do something last year in delray was it you yeah playing yeah. against um well, the oh. Bryan brothers, those, Bryan those brothers. guys, oh, those guys are chumps. I can't believe they retire those quitters. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I love How about Bob Bryan? He's the Davis Cup captain sitting in for Marty Fish, who has COVID right now. So, oh, man. Yeah. Well, I man. love the Bryan brothers, man. Those guys are the best. So. Legends. Absolute yep. legends. Um, yeah, but uh, – so, oh, so the plan is to be, to be with Coco as of right now in Australia. Well, yeah, right now. Yeah, I got some ESPN stuff. Um, okay. But it really depends on her ranking and everything. So the uh, 
right now is the push is this fall winning enough matches to pop in that to be safe top 80 top 90 to get that uh main draw of australia got it uh, well i'll be watching and um let's try and link up before before australia and uh hopefully one of these tournaments one of these days i'm going to get to one of them and uh hopefully Let we can know, do this person i appreciate Let it so much know. luke as always thank you for your time your analysis your energy your everything Love talking to you, man. Go for winners, buddy. Go for winners. Go for win And happy birthday to Mama Jensen. Thank you. Take care, Luke. That was ESPN's Luke Jensen. Uh, many, many thanks to him for coming on the show. This is his second time on. He's always uh, always excited to talk tennis. Uh, he's a great, great guest, and we'll talk to him soon, hopefully right before the U.S. Open. And so this is going to be the return episode uh, we've got a lot there with uh, talking to Luke Jensen, so I want to leave it at that. Again, keep in mind that was recorded about a week after the U.S. Open ended, so we knew about Serena's retirement or evolution. Federer had not yet announced his retirement. That's why we don't talk about it there. I will come back on the next episode, possibly with a guest, maybe not, and uh, talk about the Federer retirement uh, and things like that and what's going on in the indoor season and maybe even do a little short preview of uh, of what we're looking at going into next season because before, you know, the holidays will be here and then before you know it, we'll be starting the Australian summer leading into the 2023 Australian Open. So it is good to be back. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Again, a million thanks to Luke Jensen for always bringing the knowledge and the energy and yeah, the Holding Serve podcast is officially back. I look forward to bringing more episodes to you guys. And uh, until the next episode, thank you so much for listening. Game, set, match.